Hi, everyone. I am really stoked to see a room full of people because not everybody's like, oh, yeah, let's totally go talk about white feminism. That's not usually the people I run into. I mean, I, I, should, I should qualify that. I think I have a fairly curated circle of people who would probably say yes to that. But by and large, if I were to like ask somebody in Price Chopper if they want to have that conversation, they would be like, it's like a pretty good conversation killer. Um, probably almost as good as when I sit on an airplane and people want to talk to me and they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm working to dismantle white supremacy. <laughs> and then it's pretty clear I would rather read my book. So, so I'm just really, really pleased that you all are here. Um, you came out on a cold day. You got you know, some food and thank you to everybody who made the food and people who brought food to share. I'm just really, really privileged to be here with all of you. Um, I would also like to say that it's really fun to be in this space again. You know, Nick mentioned that I worked with this cohort of just phenomenal people in this, in this space doing training, many of whom are here, folks who were in that cohort of 20 people, because we had this vision. The Open Table had a vision um, of training people to help other folks across, the sec across sectors in Kansas City to have conversations about race. But not just like, oh, let's just sit around and have random conversations about race but with a very clear systemic analysis, with a very clear strategic outcome, um, and to organize them. And it's been phenomenal to see that happen. And I've been really sad to not be in this space. <laughs> like, I was telling folks, it feels like, um, you know, like when there's a cast member on SNL and they leave, and then they come back and they get to host an episode, I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm back. Maybe you're happy to see me, maybe you're not, but I don't care, I'm back. So it's a little bit like that. So I'm really pleased to be here. Um, okay, so um, a couple of things that I want to say to all of you, like I will, I don't judge you, this is a lot of people in a small space, so if you need to stand up, move around, you want to transition to one of the benches, if you need more food, like please do what you need to do to stay engaged and uh, to be present. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would ask is if you have a mobile phone or a device, if you could put that on vibrate or silence it. I don't expect that everybody turn it off because you all left communities and people and pets and all kinds of other uh, people and beings you care about to be here, so you might need to communicate with them still, but if that would be really helpful. And if you have to answer a phone call, please step outside to do it because um, the phone always rings at like the most like emotionally riveting moment and somebody's like, hello, what? No, just put the baby to sleep. It's okay. <laughs> and everybody's like paying attention to that. So those are my two requests. Um, all right, so I want to um, spend some time first before we get into sort of what's going to happen tonight. Uh, just giving a shout out to my friend. I don't. How many people have seen the picture that's on the front deck, the front side of my deck? If you can't see it, it's of um, the women's march and some white women wearing their pink cat hats. Um, and a woman, a black woman, holding a sign that said, don't forget, white women voted for Trump and she's sucking on a lollipop. <laughs> so how many people have seen this image before? It went pretty viral. So that's my friend Angela Peoples, who was there. Angela um, is phenomenal, is black, queer, um, has, was the executive director of Get Equal, which is a direct action um, queer, trans activist group nationally. They work on policy, culture, all kinds of stuff. She does consulting now, just recently had a baby. Her baby's adorable. Um, but I love this image because it says so much about what white feminism does, culturally, politically, socially. So we're gonna dig into that 
and we're going to talk a bit about that. But I want to spend a moment just giving you some framework for the night. So in order to have this conversation, there are a couple of steps I'm going to have us take. The first is just to say, in, you know, when we're thinking about race and when we're thinking about sexism, it's really critical that we have a conversation about intersectionality. Now, I am very aware that there are probably several things I will share tonight that will not be new to some people in the room. But I'm also really aware that you all haven't ever before as a group decided to come and have this conversation. So I also presume that some of this may in fact be new for some people. So I encourage you, if something feels like, oh, this isn't advanced enough for me, then I would encourage you in your own discipline and your own rigor to apply that to your life that way. Because I think, you know, there's in rooms like this when we're doing community-based work, the idea is to figure out how to give everybody the same information and you apply it to the best of your ability, given your situation, your rigor, and your ability to be ready to take in any of the content. So that's top, off the top. But so this whole thing about intersectionality, who wants to just shout out, tell us what intersectionality is? What is it? There must be someone in here who knows. When two things collide. So when two things collide, is it only two things? Several Several things. things, multiple things. Lots of things collide and intersect. Sometimes I think about those completely bonkers intersections, like in Tokyo, where like all of a sudden there's seven roads converging all at once, um, and then people somehow develop some kind of a practice for how they cross, um, and sometimes people run into each other and all kinds of stuff, right? So our identities are like that. So in order for us to have a conversation about white feminism, at the very least, we need to say, okay, first let's talk about race, then let's talk about feminism, And I'm going to have us talk first about sort of mainstream feminism. And then let's put those two things together. By no means are those the only intersecting identities that any of us have, right? So for anybody for whom intersectionality is new, or the phrase or the term, or if it feels really academic, which I think it can, and then people have all kinds of like, I'm smarter than you conversations, which I think aren't useful. um, I really want to encourage us to just say, think about this in your life. I'm going to give you a chance later this evening, in the next, within the hour, to really think about this in your life, where you work, where you live, your friends, your family, um, and to apply it. So the first thing is to say, oh, this is intersectional. So you'll see that the quote by Audre Lorde up here says there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. So that's the big container I want us to hold this conversation in tonight. Any questions about that? Okay. The next thing, or the next condition for the evening, is that I want us to know that the conversation we're going to have tonight is rooted in equity, not equality. Does that, maybe that surprises some people. So that doesn't mean I don't care about equality, but equality is not the same thing as equity. So if you look at this image, I'll describe it for folks who may not see it as well. On the left-hand side, you see three people, three human beings, standing on three equally sized boxes. And it says equality, and they're standing at a fence trying to watch a ball game. But only, you know, two of the three people can actually see the game. And one of those two people who can see the game sees it a bit more comfortably than the other. On the other side, you see equity. And in fact, you discover that the tallest person doesn't need a box at all. The person who is the middle-sized person needs only one box. And the person who is smallest needs two boxes. And now they can all actually watch the game over the fence. It's a really good illustration for me to share with you 
oh, when we're talking about equity, we're saying we need to take into account where people actually start. What are your historic needs? What are your social, cultural, political needs, whatever they may be? Because it's not enough just to say, well, everybody gets the same thing, and then everybody will succeed, which we know is not actually true. So the other thing I would add that isn't on this slide is also that equality and equity, they're also not the same as diversity, right? So tell me what diversity is. Is it So if there's diversity in a space, does it mean people automatically respect those differences? No. Not always. So I want to like really tease that out. So what is diversity? Different. It's difference, right? It's a variety of things or people in a space, which does not automatically guarantee that there's either equity or equality. But I raise this up because I think, oh, in conversations about social justice, we are always using those words interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. So it's really important that for tonight, I be as clear and as specific as I can with you all about what my framework is or what a framework is that we're going to talk about, because it's not really mine, I don't own it. Um, <laughs> in order for us to have the most effective conversation. So even if we disagree about equity, we're at least de defining equity. Somebody isn't using a definition for diversity when I'm trying to talk about equity, okay? So that's the goal. We're gonna focus on equity. The critical thing here too is that ultimately equity is about power. Ultimately equity is about power. Power to give resources, power to access resources, power to have privilege or not have privilege systemically and institutionally, and that's gonna be really important in this conversation. All right? Questions? Comments? Yes, I see a hand. I'm having a hard time understanding what you mean by equity because equity is actually a synonym for quality of fairness, um, being impartial. So when you say equity, can you explain in layman's terms what you mean by that? So in equity, I mean, when we're talking about social political equity, it's not the same as equality because equity takes into account what people's starting and historical needs are. So that, that's to say, we, in order to set one another up for success, have to take into account the full landscape in which we live that would create political and social imbalance. So I would not say it's impartial. I, that's not the definition that I would use. And certainly in, in social justice and organizing circles, equity is not impartial. Yes. Well, the dictionary also has a really messed up definition for race. So. <laughs> I totally get it. And I totally hear that. I'm telling you all that this is the framework I'm giving you for tonight. So if you have a different framework, that's totally fine. I'm asking you for the next hour to try it on the way I'm explaining it. And so, and that doesn't mean you know, we, we won't agree, we may not agree, and that's totally okay. I'm not here to try to convince everybody to agree with this, but I'm telling you, oh, I think that in the conversation that we're about to have, this framing is fairly useful. It has been useful in conversations in the past and in grassroots organizing circles where people are doing social justice work, this is the leaning for the definition that folks use generally. So, and um, you know, and we could, we could have a whole other training on whether or not the dictionary is the place to go for reasonable definitions for how we do social justice. So I just would put that out there too. Okay, 
So any other questions or comments? Okay. So a roadmap for tonight. I told you we're going to do, the first thing we're going to do is define racism. I'm going to offer a definition to you. The second thing we're going to do is then we're going to explore racism and feminism. What happens? And we'll have a little sort of stop along the way to talk about feminism and what we know and how we learn about it in mainstream ways. And then we'll talk about like, you know, what kind of becomes a hot mess when we add racism and feminism together. I'm going to give you some examples or some markers of white feminist behavior or norms. And then I'm going to really have you all talk at your tables and talk about your own lives. How does white feminism show up? How does it impact your life? How does it shape your life? How does it shape your work? How do you see it? How do you know it? How do you feel it? We'll have those conversations. All right, any questions about the roadmap? Anybody like, this is not the road I was supposed to be on? <laughs> so I'm not offended if you're like, nope, I'm out, peace. Cool, I'm not offended. But this is where we're going. Okay. So, a couple of things about how we'll be together. So if anybody's ever been in any of my trainings before, some folks in this room have been in my trainings before, um, I am not uh, the kind of trainer who likes to blame and shame people. Um, I find that oftentimes in trainings where folks are talking about sexism or racism or classism, they're often framed as in, who is the racist in this room? Who is the sexist in this room? Let's find them. Let's find them. And then be really glad and be like, not it, not it, not it. I find that that's not useful. I don't find that that's particularly effective when it comes to creating strategies for systemic and cultural change. Um, and I have never, in fact, uh, and this is in, like, at this point, 23 years of organizing on race equity work, have never found a strategy that works where you make people feel like shit about themselves. That doesn't work, actually. Um, and so the idea is to say, could we look at what's here? Could we look at different people's experiences and then say to ourselves, what does this tell us about the social landscape? We're not blaming people for anything. It doesn't mean we're not individually responsible and accountable for our behaviors. Of course we are. But instead, what I'd like to have us do is look at what is happening ontologically. So when I use the word ontology, I mean we're just describing what is. It is the science of describing what is without blame, without shame, Ontology is looking at what is and then making a deduction about what's happening. That's what, I, that's what I'm asking you. I will be asking all of you to do. So in order to do that, there is a bit of a relationship agreement that I'm asking you to enter into with me from now until 8 o'clock. And that is that what we're going to do is explore and engage in this content that I'm going to share with you. We're going to reflect and do some um, application. We are not going to blame and shame, and we're not going to avoid and derail the conversation. It's only 40 minutes. So if it's really hard, just hang in there. I promise I won't do anything that will really hurt you. I promise. So that's what we're going to do. That's the framework for the relationship agreement. Is there anybody who, um, actually, let me, if you can agree to this, if you could raise your hand, I'm only asking for 40 minutes of your life. That would be really great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, okay. So I'm going to make a transition. Um, I told you already I'm doing some bracketed sections of the, of the next 40 minutes. So first bracketed section, racism. What is it? Next bracketed session, section, feminism. How did we learn about it? 
Then the next bracketed se session will be racism plus feminism. Oh my God, what happens? Okay, so there's a lot of people in this room and I'm pretty sure that you've never sat in a room before and said, let's all define racism together. So I think that's fairly, it's a fairly useful thing to do. So shout it out. Tell me, when you hear the word racism, what do you think it is? What is it? All right, so I heard prejudice. I heard power. I heard bigotry. Hypocrisy. Hey, Nick, could you help me? Y'all yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming too fast for me. When I train trainers, I take a lot of pride in being able to chart and talk to people, but this shit's too much. Oh, yeah. All right, so I missed a couple. I, missed, I think I missed one over here. Ignorance? Ignorance? Yes. You versus me. You versus me. Stereotyping. Stereotyping. What else? I heard bias. I heard somebody at this front table. Maybe. Injustice. Injustice. Thanks, Nick. Revenge. revenge. Somebody said there's something about revenge. Taught. It's taught or learned, right? Yep. Ignorance. It's ignorance. Did we put it up here? Well, yep. yep, there Started. it is. Fear. Fear. What else is racism? When you think of racism, what do you think it is? Hateful. Hateful. It's a construct. It's, it's real. It's, it's real and it's institutional. Is that, did I hear that? Yes. Let's get a couple of more. So I heard, I heard violent, and it doesn't actually have to manifest in direct personal behavior, right? So those are two things that I heard. Okay, I heard two more. Ugly, did I hear ugly? Othering, divisive. Okay. Demeaning, social classification. Did I hear that? Great. All right. Let's call it good for now. It's clearly not an exhaustive list. We could spend probably three days making a list. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. yeah. Trainer to trainer. Thank you very much. Um, okay. So. If you, if you can see the list, but also think about all the words that we heard. When you think of all that together, what do you hear? Interpret this list for me. So you hear hate. You see hate. What else? Say that again. Pain. Fear. What else? Tell negative. It's, racism's pretty negative. True. Say that again. Insecurity. Insecurity. Separation. Separation. My life. Your life. Yeah, this is people's lived experience. Lots of folks in this room. This is a piece of paper that has lived experience on it. Anything else that you see? Learning. Arrogant. Arrogant. What was that? Learning. Learning. Yep, so Nick said something there about how it's taught, and Shim said it's something here around racism is around learning and what we learn. So, yes. So I think it's also subconscious. And subconscious, mm -hmm. right? So it can be, you know, like, I, this is an, in, it'll be an interesting conversation in a moment, but for us to think about, oh, like, racism doesn't have to be totally conscious to function and to be a real thing. 
even though, somebody said it, race is fake. Race is fake as the day is long, right? Race is a, a it's like when people talk about race, oftentimes folks will say it's a social construct. That means we made it up. The impacts are real, but it was made up at the time of worldwide expansion by Europeans to justify colonizing other people. You can read up all the anthropological stuff about it. Also, by the way, it's not a science, so anthropology is a little bunk on race. Um, <laughs> because race is not scientific and it's not biological. So, but for you all to, to know, right, like this is, this is the conundrum of race. Oh, we made it up, but it's totally real. And we have built an entire country on race and white supremacy culture that allowed us to enslave people like animals, not just like enslaving other human beings, but like chattel slavery, which is what we did in this country, which is different than slavery in other parts of the world and to completely colonize and kill millions of indigenous people, right? So like, I want you to think about this. Like, by the time that Columbus was finished and colonization had happened in the United States, there was only one out of 12 native people still alive who were here at the time of first contact. One out of 12 at the time of first contact. Like, this is, so this is not just like, oh, they had like some fake thing they made up so that they could come and like take all the spoils of the land, they kill people with it and use the construct for it, combined it with Christianity on top of it. So, okay, so those are some of your impressions about the definition. I'm gonna share with you some of my impressions of this list. And you all did a stellar job at showing me that in every room, when I ask people to define racism, there are as many definitions of racism as there are people in this room. So I want to just encourage us to say, oh, wait, like if there are 100 people in this room and 100 definitions and we care about solving this problem, if our diagnoses, if we have 100 diagnoses about what the problem is, we'll have 100 different treatments for what it is. It probably won't be so effective. So when I look at this list, I see things that are individual or personal behavior, right? So like a prejudice somebody can have or a stereotype an individual might hold, or an individual might be afraid, right? Or um, let's see, there's also stuff around bias and bigotry that can also, that can manifest on an individual level. So I think oftentimes when we talk about racism and people who don't want to exercise or participate in race, we'll try to say, how do I not be racist? The conversation is how do I individually become somebody who can say, I don't have a racist bone in my body as if bones are racist, right? That's the idea. Now, that's not to say individual people can't do and say awful and horrible racist things. But racism is also more complicated than that. So on this list, I also see things like, oh, um, where did I see it? There's something about power here. And people were talking about it being institutional. And people were talking about, what did I see it? Social, systemic, oppression. That if we're going to have a conversation about race that's going to be worth its salt and our time, then it's really, really critical that we, at least when we come together, have a common definition. So what I want to propose to you is that, okay, clearly we need a common definition. I also want to propose to you that racism is more than just individual prejudice or bigotry. Everybody in this country, whether you're a person of color or a white person, has been socialized to have some kind of racial bias. It is an equal opportunity disease. You can get it. We are living in a country 
that is um, everywhere we're getting messages about all kinds of people and we're taking them in to some degree or another. Now, if we know this, okay, everybody can be biased because I have had many conversations with white people who are like, oh, people of color treated me poorly. Yeah, probably. Like, you know, because everybody can be bigoted. But not everybody has the power of the systems and institutions of their society enforcing their bigotry on everybody else. That's the difference. So when we think about racial prejudice becoming racism, the institutions of that society have to say, yo, everybody live by these rules, live by these biases. We're going to do banking in a way that benefits one group over everybody else. We're going to do education in a way and in a language that benefits one group over everybody else. We're going to do, right, you get, you get what I'm saying. So ultimately what we're looking at here is an equation for racism that looks like this. So race prejudice, which is that individual stuff, plus systemic and institutional power. And, we can, and I, you'll see there in red it says the misuse. The misuse of systemic and institutional power. That's what equals racism. That's what I want you to wrestle with. That's the container we're going to work with for the rest of our time together. So when we talk about that, I wanted to, and I will only say this quickly, because we could do, I would love to do another big training about this, that institutions and power are not in and of themselves evil. We need institutions in our society. So I'm not an anarchist. I am not like, oh, tear down all the institutions. Um, because, you know, like I suspect that if you wanted to take a shower today, you might be like, oh, I think the hot water is going to come out the left side. Or if you're going to get on an airplane, you don't want to walk by the cockpit and hear the, the, the captain say, oh, hey, what's this button? I don't know what that is. Let's press it. When we're at 30,000 feet, let's press it. You want to know that the institution has some policies and procedures by which those people will fly the damn plane so you don't die. <laughs> right? So that's an institutional thing. But institutions get a bad rap because they misuse their power to recycle behaviors and norms that are oppressive. So the way that institutions distribute resources negatively impacts marginalized communities. The way that institutions do life and create policies negatively impact uh, communities that are marginalized. If an institution is anti-racist, if an institution is open and welcome and gives power to trans and queer people, if an institution is anti-classist, if an institution is anti-nationalist and anti-colonial, I want that institution to be hard to change. It's not the fault of the institution. So that's why the misuse of systemic power is there. Power is actually, for any good organizer, is a really awesome thing. You want more of it to do great things in communities. So this is the definition. All right? Um, any questions, comments? Actually, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you go to your tables. We're going to just a very quick conversation, like three minutes. Just sort of talk about it, process it with each other. Maybe an institutional view is totally new to you, and that's okay if it is. Maybe this is a renewed way of looking at racism. That's cool too, and that's great. Just take a few minutes to talk to each other. Three minutes, not a lot of time. All right, come on back. Come on back to the large group, please. I know it wasn't a ton of time. I love you guys already.
but <laughs> come on back. All right. So um, I would love to hear from just two people. I want to make the most of our time because we don't have a ton of time. But two people like, oh, what emerged in your conversation? Just, you can just tell us very quickly, top line, two people. Framework for actually communicating about racism versus solidifying an actual soul experience. So this could be a framework for actually communicating what racism is. It doesn't necessarily contain like the human and soul experience of race and racism, right? Which is like a lot of the stuff that shows up in this kind of a list. But this can be a tool and it can be useful in that way. Thank you, Shim. One more person. Yes, please. Uh, one of our members talked about how uh, uh, race isn't real, and yet we use it a lot in our institutions. And the example he gave was uh, about like driver's licenses and almost any kind of employment application, everything. That, and we understand how our bureaucracies and institutional organizations use that data, but nobody stops to say, Yes. The result of the number of persons, the example I used was the number of persons who think it's okay to say things you don't mean. Yep. Boom. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So there was a lot in what happened in that conversation, right, around what it means to understand racism as pervasive and systemic, that it doesn't require an individual's overt behavior, even though overtly racist people are here and exist. Um, and so that, you know, I think that's a really critical piece to remember around how that works. And that ultimately this is a way to shape a culture or a norm in which everybody is culpable or participates, whether you like it or not. That racism has ensnared everybody, people of color and white people. Right? It is, it's the, the I always tell folks, it's the Kool-Aid that everybody drank. It's the game that everybody's playing. And we're all socialized and taught how to do it consciously and unconsciously. But racism functions best when you don't know it's functioning. It's like, a, it's like a dysfunction or an addiction in a family where everybody pretends it's not there. <laughs> but it's like there and it's rotten and it's disgusting. But we just kind of be like, oh, I'm just going to climb over this and go to the bathroom. <laughs> but it's totally there. It's totally there, right? So that's, that's, how, that's what's happening. Now something else funny happens too. So this is the piece around what, this, what that group shared, and I suspect it's not the only group that had the conversation about, oh my gosh, the ubiquitous of racism. It is everywhere. It is systemic. It is what we know and what we don't know. That also what happens then is it shapes us at the deepest levels of our psyche and our behavior. There's a psychological, a psychosocial piece that happens. So if you, if you ever spend any time reading medical journals or academic journals, because that's just a fun thing to do, it's like a little light bedtime reading. I love a good academic journal. <laughs> but if you ever spend time reading some of the data, it shows you, and also child development will show you, people who have done race equity and racial identity development work with children will show you how powerful and potent the messaging is that shapes identity. And then our identities tell us how to interact with the world. The world gives us messages about what we value or don't value, who we value and who we don't value, and then it creates correlating behaviors. All of that is happening. Now, I'm not saying any of us asked for it. 
I'm not saying any of us like it, but I'm saying I'm pretty sure that if you lived in the United States for any significant amount of time, you were shaped racially to come into the system and to learn these things and to behave and act in such a way that supports it. Um, so for us, the task then around race is to identify these sorts of things and to interrupt them. Now, remember we said this is also intersectional. So this is going to lead into a conversation about, oh, how does race impact um, what we understand about feminism or when we try to fight sexism or patriarchy? Before we do that, I want to show you just a super quick video um, of Robin D'Angelo. If anybody knows who Robin D'Angelo is, Robin um, is a one just a fantastic human being. As a white woman has done a lot of work on white fragility and how white people respond to conversations and challenges around institutional racism. Um, because this will be a critical piece of the conversation when we talk about feminism, race, and how white women respond when we talk about the combination of those two things. So I want to play this for you all. And I'm assuming the audio will work. All systems of oppression are highly adaptive, and they can adapt to challenges and incorporate them. They can allow for exceptions. And I think the most effective adaptation of the system of racism to the challenges of the civil rights movement was to reduce a racist to a very simple formula. A racist is an individual, always an individual, not a system, who consciously does not like people based on race, must be conscious, and who intentionally seeks to be mean to them. Individual conscious intent. And if that is my definition of a racist, then your suggestion that anything I've said or done is racist or has a racist impact, I'm going to hear that as you just said I was a bad person. You just put me over there in that category. And most of my bias anyway is unconscious. So I, I, I'm not intending, I'm not aware. Uh, so now I'm going to need to defend my moral character. And, and I will, and we've all seen it. It seems to be virtually impossible based on that definition for the average white person to look deeply at their socialization, to look at the inevitability of internalizing racist biases, developing racist patterns, and having investments in the system of racism, which is pretty comfortable for us and serves us really well. I think that definition of a racist, that either or, what I call the good-bad binary, is the root of virtually all white defensiveness on this topic. Because it makes it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about the inevitable absorption of a racist worldview that we get by being literally swimming in racist water. So let me connect that to myself. As a result of being raised as a white person in this society, I have a racist worldview. I have deep racist biases. I have developed racist patterns. And I have investments in the system of racism because it's, it's served me really well. It's comfortable. It's helped me overcome the, uh, the barriers that I do face. And I also have an investment in not seeing any of that for what it would suggest to me about my identity and what it would require of me. Right? I didn't choose any of that. I don't feel guilty about it. It is an inevitable result of being raised in this society in which racism is the bedrock. The question of guilt comes in, in what am I doing about that? While we who are white tend to be fragile in that it doesn't take much to upset us around race, 
the impact of our response is not fragile at all. It's a kind of weaponized defensiveness, weaponized hurt feelings, right? And it functions really, really effectively to repel the challenge. You know, as a white person, I move through the world racially comfortable virtually 24-7. It is exceptional for me to be outside of my racial comfort zone. And most of my life, I've been warned not to go outside my racial comfort zone. And so on the rare occasion when I am uncomfortable racially, it's, it's a kind of throwing off of my racial equilibrium. And I need to get back into that. And so I will do whatever it takes to All repel right. the So we won't watch the whole thing. get back into but it. But I wanted you to just hear that encapsulation. Robin DeAngelo is fantastic. If you've never read any of her stuff, I highly encourage you to do it. If you ever get to hear her speak or work with her, she's a phenomenal person. So that's just to help us see. Okay, like I said, there's a psychosocial thing that happens. It's not just, oh, this big idea or big concept of race, but that there is a shaping of people that also triggers psychosocial behavior or emotional responses when we are challenged around race. So I want you to bracket this conversation about race because we're going to make a switch now to the next piece of the conversation, which is about feminism. So I want you to just, at your tables, very briefly, talk to each other. I want, and this is very clear, mainstream feminism, like how do we learn about feminism in the United States? I want you to talk to each other about what is it? What is feminism? What does it look like? I should be using a microphone instead of shouting. <laughs> I'm real good at shouting. So what is it? What does it look like? Who practices it? Who is it for? Just think about that. And go to your tables and talk to each other. Again, very briefly, we'll do a quick collection of this when you're done. But like three, four minutes. Come up with your brainstorm of what it is. Talk to each other. I'll give you a one minute warning. All right, come on back. Come on back. Come on back to the large group, please. So let's, I want to hear a little bit. I'm not going to record them all. I want us to actually just hear this. So what were some of the things that emerged in your conversations? Give us a taste. Share with us. When you were answering these questions, oh, how did you define feminism? How does it work? Who is it for? Yes. Yeah. So Drea was saying that historically there's there's different waves of feminism, right? So first wave generally around suffragists and wanting to get the vote. People like Susan B. Anthony and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And then there's a second wave that we generally talk about, like that happened in the 60s and 70s around women wanting to join the workforce, women wanting women fighting for equitable pay um, and, and sexual liberation. All of those things are happening. There's actually also a third wave of feminism that's much newer than that. So what else do people talk about? We talked about I, yep, here, and then I saw a hand there, too. We talked about the right versus having the privilege of. Now, we all have the rights, all equal rights, but we don't have the privilege that comes along with those rights. Yes, so that, I appreciate that, right? So there's a real difference between a right and a privilege. 
We can say that access to equitable housing and fair housing is a right. We can say that access to health care is a right. We can say that culturally competent care for you, your family, your community is a right. But those rights become privileges when only one group gets them. Right? So they're not exactly the same. I saw a hand back here. Yes. Breast cancer yogurt, for sure, for sure. Save that Yoplait top. That's right. So and that's, your reflection is a really good intersectional analysis of like, oh wait, like here's the thing that's happening where you see feminism and access to what we would think of as, um, in, this, in this case, you know, a very cisgender heteronormative understanding of gender liberation that also intersects with class, that also intersects with race. Like, oh wait, all these other things are happening. But that is, that is one of the things that we can see. Yes? So we talked, too, about how, like, it kind of goes along with some of the other things that you said, that how um, even now, today, they say, well, women got the right to vote in, you know, 1920. Womp, womp, not, not everyone. All women got that right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Not all women got the right to vote. White women got the right to vote. Yes. So this, and this is a really critical thing. Oh, we're starting to tease this out. We're starting to say, okay, like, I don't know about you, check it out for yourselves, but when I learned about any people who were feminists growing up in school, um, through the media, I learned about the suffragists who were all white, wearing like their like, big hats and long dresses, <laughs> probably with crinoline underneath. Um, I maybe learned about Gloria Steinem. I might have learned about Golda Meir. I learned about white women as feminists. Now, that doesn't mean that my teachers were bad. It doesn't mean that those people weren't, you know, that it's not about whether or not anybody's good or bad, right? This is just, this is the ontological analysis that says, what do I see? I see that I learned about white women. I see that that was how I learned about feminism. Even though my mother, who is a refugee, Asian American, she's no longer alive, when I look at now in my adult life, was the most radical feminist in my whole life. I never thought of her as a feminist because I wasn't socialized to see her as feminist until I was much older and I could flip the script myself. So this is where you start to see the seeds of how white feminism works, right? So and I wanna say super clearly, so when we think about racism and feminism, there is this thing about white feminism. Now, white feminism doesn't mean like white girls or white women who are feminists. White feminism is a cultural way of thinking, it's a pathology, so lots of different kinds of people can participate in this kind of feminism. I want you to hear that very clearly. It's not just about white women who are feminists. It's about a way of thinking that anybody can adhere to, that I adhered to. As a person of color, I thought feminism was that until I was socialized to see something different. Right? So, um, that, and I would also add, like, while our conversation about white feminism is one being held in a container of race, white feminism is also often transphobic. It's also deeply engaged in um, uh, capitalism. It's also deeply rooted in colonial behavior. All of that stuff is also real. So I would not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, like, oh, we should talk about race because white feminism only means race. It essentially means feminism that is not intersectional. Feminism that really benefits a certain group of white women. So, another quick video.
and then I'm going to have you turn and talk. I'm going to give you a little bit of an example. Super quick intro to white feminism. It's like rat race through history. Here we go. Oh, white women, why do you think everything is about you? Y'all have willfully ignored and excluded the contributions of women of color to women's rights organizing for way too long, including all those times you chose the patriarchy over sisterhood. <clears throat> well, not today, white feminists. Not today. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton have been America's feminist darlings since forever ago, launching the fight for equality. Well, for white women. In her speech to the state legislature of New York in 1854, Stanton said, We are moral, virtuous, and intelligent. And yet, by your laws, we are classed with idiots, lunatics, and Negroes. And her fellow suffragette leader, Anthony, once said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. That's right. First wave feminism was hella racist. It fought for white women's rights by arguing against the rights of, as Stanton called them, degraded black men. Black men having the right to vote before upper-class white women? The horror. It gets worse. Not only were black women excluded from the suffragette movement, organizers of the 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. asked them to march at the back of the line. They were like, hey girls, you can hang back for like another 45 years until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, thanks. Bye. Fast forward to the 1960s and 1970s, and this culture of excluding women of color from feminist organizing spaces becomes more multi-layered. The ways that they're excluded would be um, in terms of leadership, um, in terms of which communities are being organized, in terms of which topics are being organized around, um, as well as which resources are being allocated to kind of make social change. Dr. Salamisha Tillett is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of A Long Walk Home, a nonprofit that uses art to end violence against women and girls. Excluding women of color, you're not actually tackling the crux of the ways in which gender equality and racial inequality and economic inequality work in concert with each other. And that's the key. While white feminists have the privilege to focus on issues like reproductive health, sexual freedom, and wage equality, women of color have had to fight sexism and structural and institutional racism. But that hasn't stopped them. From women like Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells, feminist writers and activists who fought for African-American rights in the late 1800s and early 1900s, to Dolores Huerta, the Chicana who co-founded the United Farm Workers Union in 1962 and transformed the labor movement, to Shirley Chisholm, who was not only the first black woman elected to Congress, but the first black candidate to run for the nomination of a major party for the U.S. presidency, to the women of the Black Panther Party, who made up the majority of the organization. Women of color have been smashing the shit out of gender and racial ceilings. They also led and organized marches and campaigns like the original Million Women March in 1997 to protest the economic deterioration of African-American communities. And long before celebrities dressed in black to protest sexual harassment, there was Paulette Barnes, Diane Williams, and Michelle Vincent, black women who filed lawsuits against their bosses and shaped the sexual harassment laws we have today. Laws created to protect all women. Don't even get us started on Time Magazine's blatant erasure of Me Too founder Toronto Burke from its Person of the Year cover, which was all about the movement against sexual harassment that she started a decade ago. And women of color are still out here fighting to save all our behinds. 
thanks to the activism of black women, 98% of whom voted nope to Roy Moore in Alabama, an alleged child molester was not elected to a Senate seat, even though white women overwhelmingly voted for him. You're welcome, America. So why are mainstream feminist organizing circles still leaving out black and brown women's voices and contributions? Most, I guess, obviously is um, in terms of leadership, right? So it's not simply like what issues rise to the forefront of women's rights movements, but also who gets to be the voice of feminism. I do think though it's much harder for white feminists to, to identify with the struggles of women of color. This may explain why when it comes to organizing efforts around things like Black Lives Matter or the killing of black women like Sandra Bland, white mainstream feminists tend to be largely silent. Oh, and when it comes to the gender pay gap with white men. Women of color are still trailing behind white women, y'all. If you're talking about gender equality but not talking about racism, you just don't have effective reform. You can have versions of feminism that don't um, incorporate thinking about the ways in which people experience multiple forms of oppression. You definitely can have it. Is it as effective? No. The reality is, to move forward, feminist organizing spaces need to include the issues and leadership of women who are not just from the white, upper-middle-class, lean-in bourgeois, but those who exist across different parts of American society, starting with the most vulnerable. All right, this is on. Is this thing on? This thing's not on now. Now I have to shout. Okay, now I will shout. Awesome. So you get a sense of this. I want to say a couple of things. First is we are at time. So I know not everybody can stay past eight. So if you need to go, that's totally fine. We got into the conversation. I wanted you to just take some time at tables. So um, I think we've got probably about another 10 minutes if you want to stay. Um, but uh, no, no harm, no foul if you need to go. People have other things to take care of as well. So a couple of things I want to point out around some, oh, oops, no, oh, white women. <laughs> That's not what I meant to do. That's not what I meant to do. Some of my best friends are white women. And that's true, not just a joke, it's true. Um, okay, so a couple of examples I want to just show us about how white feminism shows up and how racism interacts with feminism. Is this whole thing about like, oh, like a rising tide, all boats rise, not true. This, this um, image is very hard to see, so I'm going to tell you what's on it. It's from a women's health organization that says, oh, 40 years strong, celebrating women's health and women's hands. And the image actually is very similar to the equality versus equity image I showed you, but it's showing boats. So you'll, in the far left, it says treating people equally. Everyone has a boat, but not everyone is starting from the same place. Giving the same tools to everyone doesn't make them equal. So there are men cartoons depicted as men floating above and cartoons depicted as women, different colors of women, in a boat that's not floating. In the middle it says, oh, treating people equitably. You'll see that there's some like mix of our own language. Both men and women are afloat. A sail now enables women to close the gap caused by inequities. That sail, by the way, is affirmative action, which people often say benefits people of color, but it has historically benefited white women at far higher rates than people of color. So there's your affirmative action sale. The third image says a gender equal society, which by the way, men and women, this is also super transphobic. Now, 
Men and women are in the same boat. Giving people what they need leads to gender equal society. It's not true that rising tides and all the same boats get people all the same things. So even if we wanted to imagine that this hypothesis is true, the, the, the depiction of different kinds of women, of different racial identities, because one is dark and one is tan and one is white, um, uh, it presumes that everybody's coming from the same starting place as women, struggling with feminism the same way or struggling with the patriarchy the same way. So this is the way that it shows up. It's totally innocuous. It's a really great message. Right? The folks who created this are not like, let's create a super crappy message, it's really racist. That's not what they meant to do. What they intended to do was to send a really uplifting message, but embedded deep in this is something else. Another example. So this was depicted in, in the little video, but Equal Pay Day is a huge, huge thing. Like Lots of progressive organizations organize around Equal Pay Day. Women's Equal Pay Day, which is based on what white women lose compared to the white man's dollar. Right, and so even the data here is really like totally janky because Asian women show up at 87 cents on the dollar, except Asian American data is often not disaggregated. So they measure households. Well, many households have multiple family members all earning in the household. So that's actually a very misleading um, number. And Southeast Asian communities, many of them are like up to 70% living in, under uh, poverty levels. But then, so this tells you on the calendar how many days, how many, how, how many days women have to work, right? White women would have to work all the way until April 17th to make as much um, as a man did in just 2017. So 2017 plus all the way into April. Black women would have to work all of 2017 plus until August 7th, 2018 to make the same amount of money. Native women would have to make, oh, 57 cents on the dollar. They're working all the way until September. And Latina or Latinx people, women would have to work until November 1st. But when we talk about equal pay, this isn't usually the framing. And equal pay has become a real rallying cry in feminist circles of things to fight for, of a way to challenge patriarchy and sexism. So that's an example. Um, my, fa my favorite, most recent example, uh, is Michelle Obama saying shit on a stage. <laughs> She's saying like one of my favorite words. <laughs> And then people got all like bent out of shape that she said the word shit, as if people don't say it, like that's not a real word. Um, but she was talking about Sheryl Sandberg's whole thing about leaning in and uh, talking about how that actually doesn't work for everybody. That there's actually great critique in that and what that means for women of color, for marginalized people. And that, quite honestly, like even she was like, it doesn't work for women, period. <laughs> but she was very clear in her framing that that kind of advice about how to take charge and to lead um, is not really effective for many, many women of color. Uh, and you know, we can see how well Sheryl Sandberg leaned in at Facebook because that got her a mess of trouble. If you know anything about what happened there. So um, the thing that I want to have us think about then, okay, there are all these examples. You can see this. Like we've now bracketed that, but we've, you see we've already started to meld racism and feminism together and this is what's emerging. Now it doesn't mean, I want to say real clearly, that anybody is a bad person if we were socialized or taught to believe in white feminism. It's not about good or bad people, but it is about saying, oh, here it is. This is what it looks like. Could we develop enough of a skill or a muscle to analyze what we see and then identify the places that are problematic? That's what I'm trying to encourage you to do. 
It's not to say that these white women are bad or you're a bad person if you're a person of color who believe this or if you're a man and you believed in you know, feminism and liberation for women and you were socialized into this. We all were. This is how we do feminism in the United States. And now, yes, a hand. Um, who can tell us more about Lean In and Sheryl Sandberg? Somebody in here, did anybody read her book? I didn't read her book. Oh, okay, so would you like to tell us what you posted about Sheryl Sandberg? There was an article in... Here, I'm going to give you, oh, I'm going to give you this. Uh, Fitch Media, when it, it's talking about... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Uh, this explosive piece detailing the social media's bemouth uh, role in the seminar. Okay, let me, let me scroll. <laughs> <laughs> but the connection between Sandberg, the concealer, and Sandberg, the corporate feminist, is no accident. It, it's talking about how... Um, this uh, idea of, uh, I'm trying to paraphrase here, uh, the gender uh, trader who works tirelessly on behalf of systems built to exclude, marginalize, and imperil other women. Though the term was coined in The Handmaid's Tale as Gilead's justification for the exile and punishment of queer women, the contemporary gender trader is ultimately faithful not to her fellow woman, but to her class status and her fellow corporate titans. Yes. So that's the impact. But so Sheryl Sandberg basically said, hey, women, if, it's, it's all good. It's also good to see you and your shoes are fantastic. Um, Sheryl Sandberg got really famous by saying, hey, women, if we want to be leaders, we need to lean into leadership. We need to lean into doing all of what it takes to be leaders, particularly in the corporate sector, which is how she got to be at the top of Facebook, basically, one of the top leaders at Facebook. And, but it comes at a cost, right? It comes at a cost to your family. It comes at a cost to your children. If you have children, it comes to a cost um, to your partners and your community. But it was all about the, what it means to just lean into it and take the leadership. But that totally was devoid of the fact that white women are taught about leadership and have access to leadership in a way that's very different than women of color. Now, I'm not saying that white women are on par with white men. But I am always, but I'm saying, let's not compare white women to white men. Let's compare white women to women of color. That's the way that we'll see how race works. And she was a real believer in what it means to like, just take it, take the bull by the horns, do it. And it's also like feeds into meritocracy, it feeds into hard work, and if you can just work hard enough, you can have that. And it's super corporate and super classist. So thank you for asking the question. Usually when somebody asks the question, there's somebody else who's thinking the same thing. So I told you a bit, of, I showed you that little clip from Robin D'Angelo about how white people have built um, and have been socialized to respond um, emotionally and with defensiveness when called on race. So something really interesting happens when we contextualize race and feminism, um, and white women are asked to consider that race is something that works to their advantage, it can be a very difficult conversation, right? Because having an encounter experience with yourself in any place of your life where you have power and privilege is, can be really, really hard, right? Can somebody can say, like, oh, you're acting some shit out. I don't like it. And I'll be like, what? I'd be super defensive. Um, it's harder to be very gracious about it and to consider that what that person is experiencing from you is real. So one of the things that happens when Robin D'Angelo was talking about weaponizing emotionality among white people and defensiveness in order not to talk about race, 
is that that also happens um, between women of color and white women when we talk about race and feminism. And one of the things that ends up happening, enough that there's a, there are lots of memes about it, um, is that there's this manipulation around emotion and crying that then becomes about taking care of the white woman. So, um, so here's an example. Barbecue Becky. Do you remember Barbecue Becky? Barbecue Becky was real big in the news. So Barbecue Becky is a white woman who called the police on black people in Oakland who were legally barbecuing and called the police. And then when they were like, what? <laughs> and then she got caught on video. And then she started saying she was being threatened and her safety was at risk because she was calling the police on black people that she didn't want there, even though they legally had every right to be there. So then when it became clear that what she was doing was messed up, then she started to cry. And then it became about like, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, oh, you're hurting me. Like, you can watch the video, it's absolutely ridiculous. But that's the weaponizing that Robin DiAngelo talks about. And that's the weaponizing and manipulation of crying and emotion that keeps us from having a real conversation. Because then it's no, and, and any psychotherapist will tell you that is abusive AF. That is abusive, right? So when you are victimized and your abuser says to you and gaslights you and makes it about them that you, what you're experiencing is not real, that's a really good way to not be accountable for your behavior, to not be responsible for the context in which you are experiencing something with another person and to completely invalidate that other person's experience. It's really, really deep. Katina, yes. And that's why I am challenged. I thought I was going to be quiet. <laughs> Katina <laughs> thought she was going to be quiet. Anybody who knows Katina in this room would be like, that's, that's a challenge. I'm challenged oftentimes, and, I, and I'm not labeling good or bad, mm -hmm. but I am a challenge and get pushback. When you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. So you do have a personal responsibility and accountability, and I think people scapegoat that by saying, Oh, we don't want to make you feel like you're a bad person. No, if you know better and you continue to contribute to your own and others' oppression, then yes, I have a problem with you. You have to own your shit. Mm. Right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Michelle Obama. We own that shit. <laughs> but like, you gotta own that. Right? That's right. And, and the same thing now that I'm hearing with conscious and unconscious bias, now I feel like we're getting to a place where that's a scapegoat term as well. Oh, they're just not aware. I call BS. Yeah. And some people are very much aware, and they continue because they don't want to sacrifice their own comfort and privilege mm -hmm. to help other people. Yeah. And so, yes, I will say yes, sometimes we are blissfully ignorant and unaware. But yep. there are other times we are absolutely aware and we continue to participate. Yep. And I'm going to call that out. Yep. Like, yep. I'm not going to give people a free ride anymore. Yep. And it's hard not to know once you know. Once you know something, there is a part of you that has to make a willful choice to pretend you don't know. Like, it's just that the, the, how you, that certain, the way you are exposed to something, the way you have an encounter experience, it reveals to you a structure of knowing that you didn't have before requires pretending you are going to somehow put the structure of knowing someplace else. 
So this is true. I would also say to you, right, remember I said there's something deeply psychosocial happening that shapes our behavior. And I keep saying to you, okay, I've used words like pathology. Pathology means like an illness. Yeah. Illnesses like that create compulsive behavior. Yeah. That means like, so, you know, like this, so this is some of the brain science around race and identity development and behavioral reaction and response, is that you build neural pathways that are familiar. That means like if you're in a forest, it's like looking at a well-worn deer path in, a, in the forest. And even if you know you don't want to walk down that path anymore, your body, your brain, all your flight or fight conditions are trained to immediately go down that pathway. So you can become conscious. And once you know better, I tell my own children, right? If I, if I tell my own eight-year-old and 10-year-old, you know better, you should do better. I figure adults should know that too. <laughs> But there is another factor, the psychosocial stuff that happens that creates compulsive or reactive behavior that immediately shows up. Now, we can look at Barbecue Becky and be like, that's extreme. But Barbecue Becky isn't really that different than anybody else who is socialized. You just may not have an as extreme a response, but there is still a social, cultural response that's instilled in us in order to engage in the construct that we live in. So the, the challenge, right, I said, well, then the challenge is to say, how do I create a new neural pathway? That creates intent, that's, that's also intentional. That's also like, oh, I see that like, my first instinct is to clutch my purse when I see a black person. I can know that that's really messed up. I, and I might not catch it until I've already felt my hand gripping that purse, right? Because the neural pathway is really strong, right? Or um, I, had, I was doing a training once, and I had somebody come up to me and say, I was really surprised that you spoke English so well. But I'm not racist. So I had to listen, but like, so it's totally a yikes. But also like, oh, this person was saying to me, and I had to recognize that that was how I had been socialized to see you. So that person was having a neural pathway moment with me and was vulnerable enough to share it with me. Now, I can say, oh, that was really messed up that they learned that. Yeah, it is. But we all learned a bunch of shit that's really messed up. So that person isn't any, I'm not somehow better than that person because I'm an anti-racist organizer. I learned all that stuff too. So, but that, those are the moments when we have to say, oh yeah, of course you should know better. Of course you should do better. And it takes people time to develop new behavior, even though they recognize that something is problematic. This is really, really intense. And so for anybody who does long-term change over time with people and communities, that's one of the most critical things to understand, right? That like, am I gonna, am I gonna be frustrated with, with people who engage in white feminism or white women who manipulatively cry? Of course I'm gonna be frustrated. But does that mean that I will write every one of them off? No, it doesn't. Because there are strategic relationships, there are organizing relationships, there are places where we will still have impact, that person is growing and changing, and it's not like my shit don't stink. Right, so like until somebody is perfect, then we can have a conversation about whose perfection gets to define whether or not somebody's actually learning and growing. So all, that's, a, that's a big mouthful. And we should have high expectations of each other. If we know we should have high expectations of each other. Yes? Can I say something real quick to sure. what Katina just said? The, the ones you call things out, people in black and brown bodies we're seeing, it's so subtle because I challenge everyone 
if this defense mechanism, but that's not good or bad that we all have, comes up where somebody does call you out in the workplace, there are very effective ways that people undermine <coughs> those people for calling those things out. And that one lady just came, uh, uh, they had the, the national story about her posting something on Facebook and all her co coworkers tried, or I don't know about all of them, but they tried to get her fired and this and that. That happens, I mean, probably every moment of every mm -hmm. corporate hour. So, yep. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I want to share this with all of you, that there is opposition to white feminism. That there is a way in which you can, like a whole movement that has started. Yes, another. And I just want to add kind of correlating off what you said that, you know, whenever, especially white people, you do use the, oh, I'm crying or I'm scared card, it's not just of how you feel, like people are losing their life. Yes. Black men, especially. Yes. So it's something that it's not just a, oh, I see that I'm wrong or I'm trying to get out of it. You have to think of people's lives and families, and it's not okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you a lot for that. Um, so I want to share with you that there is a very formal response to white feminism and a whole movement that was created in, in response to white feminism that is actually much more than just a reaction to white feminism. Um, and it's this rise of womanism. The text is very small, so I'll read it quickly. But it says, in the 1980s, the advent of womanist and mujeristas, derived from the Spanish word mujer, or woman in English, movements and theology spoke to African-American and Latina women who did not find their issues were being addressed within the feminist movement. The term womanism arose from Alice Walker's book, In Search for Our Mother's Gardens, in which she described a womanist as a black feminist or feminist of color. Shortly thereafter, Latinas embraced mujerista as a way to claim their space over white feminists. Both groups created a space for themselves in reaction to white feminism, which they believed held no room for them because of classism and racial issues that at best white feminists did not understand and at worst used against women of color. There is a formal response. And womanism is also um, a framework and a way of thinking that lots of people can engage in. Right? So in the same way that uh, white feminism isn't just about white women practicing feminism, womanism is an ideology that can be supported by lots of different people that takes into account colonization and how that impacts women of color, that takes into account classism, that takes into account all the ways that we experience cultural racism, which is different than the, racial, the experiences that we have as racial, in our racial identities. All of these things have room and space in this kind of a conversation. So, I want to be very conscious of time. I really am thankful for how much extra time you've given me. I was going to have you talk about some things at your tables, but I want you to just take these questions with you. And the first is, you know, in order to apply the analysis, like we could have a big conversation about theory and constructs and all that stuff, but it's not useful to you unless you're saying, where does this show up in my life? Where is it? Where is it with my friends and family? Where I work? How did I learn this stuff? How do I begin to identify those things? So the questions I want you to take with you are, how does white feminism show up in your life? How has white feminism impacted and or shaped you personally? And how has white feminism, there's a typo, how has white feminism impacted your work, your organization, or your institution, and or your community? So it's not just a nice conversation we had at Second Pres on a Sunday. But the, like, a functionally, I want our conversation to have been a tool or like a, I always tell folks when you do a good training or you have a great conversation, somebody has given you a pair of glasses that you can put on that helps you see things differently. 
or a filter on a light or your gel. You put a blue gel on that light, that spotlight, and see what you see. And then what happens when you take the gel off? Or what happens when you take your glasses off? I just gave you a pair of glasses. And I'm asking you to wear them. Try them on for a while. Maybe they'll give you a headache. Good. <laughs> Good. Right? Like when your prescription changes, it takes a little bit of adjusting. I would encourage you, though, too, like when you think about what to do, the first thing is like talk about it. Oppression works when people don't talk about it. I tell you, it's like addiction. It is just like addiction. Like the models of addiction and addictive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy are so applicable here. It works when we don't talk about it. It wants us to stay silent about it. So don't. Talk about it to the best of your ability. Learn about it. Talk with your friends and family. Have the conversations that scare you. Try it. Um, engage in deep self-interrogation. So if you're saying, oh, man, I have this, like, this like super liberal white friend who like she's like really does all this stuff that's really problematic in her feminism. It's great. Maybe she needs help, or maybe they need help. But if you want to help them, the best way I found to help people is to be able to reflect your own life experience in order to help them see their life experience, not to interrogate somebody or make them feel awful because you've identified some place where they need to do work, right? But you don't. Of course, I don't. I don't. I'm good. I'm here to help you. That's usually not useful, right? So the more honest and open you can be, the more rigorous you can be about identifying all the places where you learn behavior or have access to power, the better. The better for your work with your community and with other people that you care about and you love. Connect with folks who are doing organizing. Connect with groups that are really not just having great conversations about this, but trying to do something about it. Right? I am a grassroots organizer, and I'm always saying, who are the people? Where's the power? What are they doing with it? What's changing? What's the impact that they're having? Is it a policy impact? Is it a cultural impact? Are they doing scalable education with lots of people in order to do something? Whatever that is, find people. Because doing this hard work is a lot easier when you do it in community. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is figure out if there's behavior that you expect from other people or would like to see from other people, then show that to them yourself. Be a good model. Be transparent if you want people to be transparent with you. Be vulnerable if you want them to be vulnerable with you. Share with them all of your own best practices. Share with them your mistakes. That's really critical. The best, most productive, most transformative communities are communities where people are practicing and living and learning together. And they don't do that just because people fall out of a tree and are like, hey, let's be a living learning community. It's because some people decided they would stick their necks out and show other people that it would be okay to do the hard thing or have the hard conversation or be super vulnerable in a space that feels sometimes risky. Those are some of the very best things that you can do. And that is what I have for you. And I ran super late. I really appreciate you all coming. Um, you can find me. I don't live that far away from here, but you can find me. Like, I'm, I'm around. So we can talk, and there's lots of great organizing. I'm connected to great organizing, but there's also lots of like, absolutely incredible organizers in this room doing this kind of work, integrating this into their, uh, their organizing. They may be organizing another issue, but there are lots of people here integrating this analysis into what they do. So co really connect with people and get connected to the open table. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you so much.